going to be in Ephesians chapter 3 in your Bibles. Ephesians chapter 3, we're going to pick up there in verse 8 and walk all the way over to verse 13. And if you have your uh, bulletin worship guide here, we've got the outline on the back if you would like to take notes. And we're going to put that in there if it's of help to you and if you want to follow along with us. And uh, before we begin, I just want to I recognize my friend Nick from boxing class. Uh, Nick has brought his family here to uh, join us today, so I hope that you guys will make them welcome. Uh, The title uh, of the message today, the main idea, is that only the grace of God can produce lasting boldness um, in in a broken life. And that basically is, is putting forward the message that for a person who has experienced brokenness, a person who's experienced things that have been done to them that were not right. Or a person who's experiencing great amount of guilt because of things that they have done in their lives that they know that they shouldn't have. And it's a constant cause of grief and depression and of just regret. We're going to look at in the Scripture this passage, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 8-13. through The main idea here is that only the grace of God, only the grace of God can produce a boldness from a life that is filled with shame and a life that is filled with brokenness. Uh, I don't know if you have ever, um, anybody ever here been to Chuck E. Cheese? All right. Referenced this about a month and a half ago, but it was on a different, different point. Any of you ever had the privilege of bringing children to Chuck E. Cheese? All right. Good memories, right? So when you go in, not all the time, some, some, some kids are more assertive than others, and, and when kids see things that might scare other children, they just go towards them. But sometimes this happens that when you go into Chuck E. Cheese with a kid, and they have Chuck E. E. Cheese come out, the kid begins to what? To scream. And then we look, all oh, cute little kid, but guys, it's a giant rat. Think about it. It's a giant vermin. And the, the kid is, is terrified of this person in a mouse costume. Now, change around the scenario. You bring your 18-year-old there. And when Chuck E. Cheese comes out, the 18-year-old begins to howl and cry. And you think, honey, we may have a problem. Are you with me? And there might be a little bit of difference uh, between an 18-year-old and let's say uh, an 18-month-year-old or an 8-year-old. And the point is that as we as people grow older, our knowledge increases and we understand that when we go into that establishment, which is basically a crooked casino for kids, as Tim Hawkins says, you know, you spend 75 bucks and you come away with, he says, like a spider ring and you're like, yes, I won this. Wait, that was the worst investment in the history of the world. You know, as we grow older, our knowledge increases so that the things that we used to fear because we did not understand them, we now do not have any reason to fear them at all because we do. And there are people today that are on both sides of the fence. There are some people today and they don't really see a need for God in their life. 
They look at the Bible as kind of like this collection of, of good stories that you're supposed to read to your kids or things that says something like, don't kill your neighbor. But as for me and my life, I don't see the need for Jesus and therefore they do not fear God. If that's you this morning, you have much to fear. Why? Well, as we're going to look, God created everything. And if God is the master of the universe, not He-Man. Anybody remember that, right? He-Man, master. All right. He-Man is not the master of the universe and neither is Skeletor. But it is God who we know through the Scriptures and we can see in nature who is in control of everything. And God is perfect and He is holy. That means that he cannot even look upon sin to approve of it in any way. And then we take a look at ourselves and we see that our lives are filled with sin, except for the self-righteous person who comes to church. Everybody still okay? All right. The person who comes and if there was a rainstorm that came, they would drown because their nose is so high up in the air. Always looking down on everybody else instead of, as that Jesus said back in Matthew chapter 7, to examine your own fruit, examine your own life, and see if you're actually really saved. That person has much to fear. Because the Bible says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The Bible says that it is appointed unto man once to die, not multiple times, once to die, and after this, the judgment. Now, that's a little bit scary, right? Like, you've ever heard, well, we come this way only once. That is true, but given that that is the case, then it is based upon what we do with Jesus Christ in this life that determines where we will be in the next and there is an intentional period on the end of next. There is no next and after. The next is final. So for that reason, brings us to the text and brings us to the Word of God that we should get saved for real by receiving Jesus Christ and what He has done in our lives. And from that point, you take once we have crossed over to the other side and we have been saved, we understand the loving nature of God. That even though He didn't have to, He came and He died in this world to save me and to save all who would turn to Him. Isn't that good news today? That we can trust in a God who has come to this world not as some type of angelic being, not as a spirit, but came as flesh and blood like we are. And that only God can produce in a broken life boldness in the end. So the Apostle Paul begins there in verse 8. And he says, to me, the very least of all the saints. It means that God lifts up the broken. God lifts up the broken. What do we mean here by God lifting up? We've got to get, understand a little bit about the Apostle Paul. Um, the, the word that he uses here is basically a word that he kind of uh, jerry-rigged to get across an important point. Actually, the least of all the saints, if you translated this literally, you could translate it as the leaster. Kind of like a... Uh, Certain past president who, who is renowned for being able to, uh, to make up words. It's he's, he is putting together a term that says, I am the least of the least 
of the least, I am the leaster of all the saints. Now, what is going on here? Well, the Apostle Paul, right, he's in prison, okay? He's in house arrest. He is under guard. And he's looking back on his previous life. And before we do that, we need to be very careful that we don't fall into the danger of false humility. The danger of false humility. What is false humility? Well, false humility is... <laughs> it's kind of like, like a, a, a juxtaposition, an oxymoron, to where it's like this. If you guys need anybody to teach a course on humility, this guy. Right? I just want to let you know, I've got my book here for sale for $29.99, How I Mastered Humility and Discipled the Ten Most Humble People on the Planet. Right here. Right? That would be false humility. False humility would also be, now, now check this out, going through every day thinking of how humble we are. It's like, okay, I've got to be humble. All right, cool. I am humble. Oh, yeah. I've got humbleness and humility going on. I feel like I could just teach a doctoral seminar and humility because I've been memorizing verses about humility. I, I heard a sermon about Jesus and he was humble. Man, I am ready for this humility thing. I got this down. Well, what is that? That's arrogance, right? That, that's, that's pride. That's the opposite of humility. So sometimes like in church, if somebody gives you, um, let's, let's say that God has really used you to do something awesome. Let's say that you, you saw in the choir, you've gone visiting someone, and God has just really used you. Someone said, you know what? I really appreciate your encouragement. You're like, well, huh, hold on. I'm, I'm just, a, just no good, and I'm terrible, and I'm a piece of garbage, and you should probably just go ahead and punch me in the face. I mean, that is false humility because what it's focusing on is our humility as opposed to Christ's work. Does that make sense? So the Apostle Paul, he, people ask, was he being disingenuous? Was he kind of like trying to make a case bigger than it was? You guys remember where Paul kind of got his introduction into Christianity before his name was Paul? Before his name was Paul, Bible scholars help me out. What was his name? Saul. So you got Saul, Paul, Paul, Saul. So Saul is there, and there's this man named Stephen. And this is over in Acts chapter 7. If you want to turn there, you don't have to. It's in the last few verses of Acts chapter 7. You see this man who is named Stephen. And Stephen has so much love within his heart, so much passion for Jesus, that even though this group is probably going to kill him, guess what he does? He preaches a hardcore message. Now, here's a big question for you and I. If we are there in this group, we don't have a lawyer, there's really no true judge, and everybody in the circle around us really wants to see us killed, what would most of us do? You don't have your cell phone. You can't call your hunting buddies, right, to bring over their guns and start blasting, okay? You, you, can't, you can't send a text message to 911. You are there, and you, the, the only thing that you can do to get out of the situation is to compromise on what you know is true. Well, Stephen does not only not compromise, but he begins to preach a sermon, man, to these guys saying, y'all are wrong. Standing up by themselves. By the way, students, this is an awesome story from God's Word on how to stand alone. And yet, Saul was unmoved. All of a sudden, they dragged him out, Stephen, put him on the ground, and they began to pick up rocks to kill him. 
Have you ever seen a fight before? And a fight that's gone a little bit too far? You know, and, and it's that point to say, well, we need to stop the fight or somebody's going to be permanently hurt. This is not UFC. This is not stick fighting. This is not Ninja Turtles Expo. These guys, they are picking up rocks. They are picking up small boulders with the intention in their mind of coming over to this man who was so filled with love and was so filled with mercy and so filled with Jesus that he would not hurt anyone, but yet they're picking up stones, a group of grown men, and with these stones, they're going to literally make human paste out of this man so filled with love. Not only does Saul not jump in and say, guys, stop. But he comes over and he's basically like, hey, I'll watch your coats for you so that you can have better a better throwing arm when you do your death dealing. In the last verse of Acts chapter 7, Stephen falls on his knees and he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. That was this guy's last words. You can put yourself in that mentality. You hate this person so much who's never done anything to you wrong that you are going to kill them. And the last thing that they say, instead of letting out a string of profanity and doing everything they can to let you know that I hate you for what you have done, they let out a prayer to God on your behalf. But yet Saul was unmoved. In fact, Acts chapter 8 says in verse 3 that Saul began to ravage the church, entering house after house, dragging them out and putting them to court. Wouldn't you guys say that's a pretty hard heart? You've seen this guy butchered and he prays for you with his last breath. And then you get up and you begin to savagely attack people like him who have the character of Christ. But then one day in Acts chapter 9, Jesus shows up and Jesus breaks down the walls of Saul's heart. And God not only, this is so awesome, God not only gives him a new name, but he gives him a new heart. And he looks back on his life and he says, I'm the least of all saints. And in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verse 9, I believe you can write this down if you would like. He says, because I persecuted the church of Christ. I don't know what really anybody here has done in their life, but I'll let you know that God lifts up the broken. If your sin has brought you to your knees, God can lift you back up. Jesus Christ came to the Apostle Paul and he lifted him up when he was broken. You say, well, Jeff, there in your notes, why would God do this? Why would God use the least of the least? God will do that so that people, please hear this, they will see the greatness of God. Like if you've come out of a really bad situation, if your family life has been, and I'm not cussing when I say this, I'm just being real, if, if it was hell, and people see you come out of that with the ability to forgive... They're like, man, if you came out of that and I'm in something like it, that shows me that who you worship can help me also. It shows the greatness of God. I mean, the greater the problem, 
the greater the glory goes for the one who has the solution, right? I mean, I don't know anybody in school after like the first few grades that runs through the halls like, I got two plus two equals four. Well, good for you. But man, you talk about the student who is sweating bucks trying to study for that SAT or that ACT and they finally, it finally clicks with geometry and algebra too. And they're like, I can solve this. Man, they just want to run around like, Eureka! I got it! Because the harder the problem is to solve, the greater the solvent is. I mean, imagine if we could go back in the Bible and see David and Goliath, but change around the story to where Goliath was a midget. I mean, how would that have given glory to God for David to be like, hey guys, I beat up this midget with a stone. Doesn't make sense. Some of you are trying to like, what is the theological significance of that? It is an ad absurdum example. It is something to illustrate that the glory of God was manifested not in how awesome David the little guy was. Because sometimes you hear the story of David and Goliath preach. Like, man, David was out there practicing. He was like killing lions and bears. Well, yeah, you would too if they were going to kill you. I would hope. The story of David and Goliath is not to illustrate how awesome the little guy was and how quickness is better than strength in the octagon. None of that. It's focused simply on the greatness, please hear this, of the God that the little guy trusted in. Amen? And that goes back to the Apostle Paul there in verse 8 saying, I am the least of the saints. It means that God can be glorified through our mistakes. Now, at this point, there's somebody um, who says, okay, cool, (laughs) sweet. So that means that God can get glory and God's name can be glorified through my mistakes. Well, then, mistake city, here we come. I'm going to do all the bad I can with all the time I can. I'm going to go out, I'm going to raise Cain. Because, you're saying, Jeff, the Bible tells me that when a person makes mistakes, that God can be glorified. Yes, God can be glorified in your destruction or your salvation. Either one. And Romans chapter 6, verse 1 says, Brethren, how can we continue to live in sin when we have died to it? The point is that if we have really been changed, we want God to be glorified through our obedience. Amen? Right? Through our obedience and not through Him having to humble us through judgment. So, secondly, there in verse 7 and 8, you're going to back up to that last phrase there in verse 7, we see that God's grace is stronger than my sin. God's grace is stronger than my sin. Notice what verse 7 says. According to the working of His power. He's speaking of God's grace that had been given to him, not because Paul had attained a certain level of Christianity. And if you're a new Christian here today, Christianity is not about you trying to be the awesomest Christian you can, but simply letting God work through you, and when He shows you an area to improve in, to obey Him and follow Him in that. God's grace is stronger than my sin. It's kind of like little kids um, will talk about whose dad is stronger or whose dad has the most weapons. The point is for us as believers, when we go through depression or any type of discouragement, are we focusing upon what we have done or what Christ has done? 
If you're truly saved here today, everything that you have ever done in your past that has been wrong has been washed clean by what God has done through Jesus on the cross. That means that when Jesus came into your life, He didn't just come in that day and be like, Hi, I'm Jesus. I'm your friend. High five. Jesus came in to save you and cleanse you from everything that you've ever done. Y'all all right? And if you're saved, that is such an awesome principle that God's grace is greater than my sin. You see, that, that, that's, that's why you can't get saved and go back to being lost once you get saved. Because as we've looked at Ephesians chapter 2 and chapter 3, that salvation, being saved, born again, is not something that we do, but it's something that God does in us. And so if God has done something in us, and He's greater than we are, then we can't ever do anything to undo what He has done. And there in verse 8 says that this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. Grace is a necessary gift for serving and following God. It's a necessary gift. Man, if you, if you don't have the grace of God in your life, you're going to burn out. You ever experienced burnout with anything? Maybe it's a job. I was teaching a Sunday school class. Maybe it's I mean, go into a certain restaurant and just eat the same thing all the time. Or maybe you like that. Some people like order. Um, when you look at the grace of God, it is the only thing that enables us to truly serve God. Because if we try to serve God outside of the grace of God, we're not going to really truly serve Him. It's kind of like uh, if you've seen the great uh, theological film, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. You guys seen that? Everlasting gobstopper. It's a piece of candy that's never supposed to lose its flavor. It's a point of God's grace, except for it doesn't rot your teeth. It simply gives you the ability day after day after day. If you receive it through faith, God will help you do what you're not able to do. And the superiority of, of the message of the God, uh, of the Lord. Uh, first off, notice there the scope of God's message is to all people and the substance of God's message, man, it surpasses human knowledge. And the superiority of the message is it's from God. Now, some people will tell you that Christianity is something that's made up. There's no person who's going to make up a religion that sets people free. There's nobody that's going to, for selfish motives, make up a story to where they don't get anything out of it other than martyrdom and, or death. Christianity, through and through, it's from God. It's a story of grace. It's a story of us being able to receive what we could never earn. Where all other rural religions, you could compare it to a ladder. And they say, here is heaven. Here is nirvana. Here is the highest state of existence. What you got to do is climb, climb, climb. When you look at through the Scripture, you see that Jesus came down and He said, done, done, done. You know, a young man before he passed away this summer, he was 18 years old, he died in a tragic car wreck. His name was Dylan Faircloth. And Dylan was an extremely intelligent guy. He actually would go to Duke during the summers as a high school student because he was so gifted. He was trying to figure out this God thing, as he called it. Uh, Pastor Stanley, his pastor is a mutual friend of mine, said that Dylan came in one day and he said, Pastor Stanley, I got this God thing all figured out. And he's like, oh no, man, it's going to take me weeks to undo this. And Dylan said, I figured out that I can't figure God out. And that's profound. 
You say, Jeff, what do I have to understand about God? We have to understand like John Newton, the guy who had been a slave trader, like actually, actually sold people as property. And the man who wrote the words to Amazing Grace, he said, I am a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior. If you're here today and you have been broken by your sin, please understand that it is your sin that is not the central point of the Gospel, but it's Jesus Christ's superiority to your sin. In verse 9, he explains it further. He said that God has given him this grace to bring light to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery for which ages have been hidden in God who created all things. He's saying, that, it, and if you want to get more info on this, uh, go check out our message online from last week, the mystery of the church, but essentially what the mystery is referring to is the fact that God could take all peoples from all different ethnicities and language patterns and skin colors and socioeconomic patterns, Jew and Gentile, and make them into one body, the body of Christ, where there is no difference. It's not saying that white is superior to Indian or Jew is superior to um, African or anything like that. But Jesus says Throughout Scripture, and especially in Ephesians, the explanation is simply that only God could bring together groups in a true harmony. You guys ever seen like diplomatic conferences before? Right? We've got like a, a United States representative and a representative from, let's say, uh, China. And they're very cordial, right? You know, there's the handshaking and there's the smiles. But I've always wondered what it would be like if I had an audio transcription of what both parties were thinking. That'd be kind of scary, wouldn't it, right? Like you've got all this diplomacy and, oh yes, welcome to our country and we want to do trade with you. We want to be, uh, you know, in partnership with you. But really, they're probably both thinking, I wish I could blow you away right now. There's like this mutual hatred among different people groups, but the gospel of Jesus Christ, the mystery of people say, how can you get all of these people together? It comes through what Jesus Christ has done done because he's died for all people the phrase right there uh, in verse 9 it's hidden in God who created all things this is a huge huge point throughout even uh, modern science today it's when we have that statement there in your notes by a physicist and I'll I'll read it to you it says uh, this is physicist PCW Davies the coming into being of the universe as discussed in modern science is not just a matter of of imposing some sort of organization upon a previous incoherent state, but literally the coming into being of all physical things from nothing. People today say, now Jeff, how can you say that God created everything? Well, it goes like this. Whatever begins to exist has a cause, right? You're here today, you have parents, right? And they had parents, and they had parents. And second premise is that the universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause. And some people say, well, you know, couldn't the cause have been an explosion of, of, of random materials? Where, where did the random materials that exploded came from, come from? Push, the, push it back a step. And people say, well, it's always been here. Well, that doesn't answer the question, does it? 
The universe has always been. Well, Scripture says that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? Genesis 1.1. So was there ever a time, go with me on this thought, was there ever a time in which God did not exist? Was there ever a time where God just a quadrillion years ago just, hey guys, I'm here. If there wasn't anything, did God show up? Listen to the statement. From nothing, nothing comes. Imagine if there was nothing here. Like there was absolute, like nothing. No air, no wood, no pews, no building. If there's nothing there, if there exists nothing, then nothing can come from nothing, right? Can we all agree on that? And that, that's kind of like basic logic. Out of nothing, nothing comes. Well, if there ever was a time when there existed nothing, then nothing would have come into existence. Right? If there was ever a time in the past to where there existed nothing, then everything had to come from something If there was ever a time to where there was nothing, then there couldn't be anything here today. That's why Scripture says that God said, I am that I am. God has always existed. And some people say, well, now, Jeff, couldn't the cause for the universe be like uh, like an impersonal force, like the force on Star Wars? You know, may may the force be with you, all right? Well, if that's the case, then how do you get personal people from an impersonal force like electricity or gravity or some other sort. Even in engineering, we know that the engineer always has the greater intelligence than that which is made. Even self-replicating software, like if you've seen the movie iRobot, which was built with the software for these robots to think and act independent of the designer, they still had to be designed that way. So you can't believe that there's just this force out there that created a world of rational, dependent, personal beings like you and I. The only other alternative, since it can't just be random matter, is a personal God. An unembodied mind, which the Scripture says, God is spirit, right? And those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. It means that God could exist forever and He could exist in time or outside of time because God is not affected um, by the decay of time. So also, there we see that in verse number 10 that grace is an active reality and not dead poetry. Notice verse 10. It says, So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church. And here's the object to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This means simply that the church, the body of Christ, not the building, but us, we are supposed to be here so that people can look at our lives and see our love and realize that God is real. So the question is, is are we doing that? Because the church was not put here to simply be like, hi, we're the church. You ever had somebody just stop by your house before and they like just, I mean, they, they stay, they don't really do anything? I used to have, have this, um, growing up sometimes people would come over and they would just knock on the door and like, hey, how you doing? I'm doing good. What are you up to? Oh, nothing. You want to come in? Sure. And they just stay the whole day. They don't really talk to anybody in the house, but they're just kind of like awkwardly sitting there. 
They don't really watch TV. They don't read a book. They're just kind of like just sitting there. They're like, well, we're going to go to bed. It's midnight. They're like, okay. And they're just there. It's awkward. I don't know if anybody else has had that experience. You're just like, this is strange. You're here, but you're not really doing anything. And it would likewise be weird for God to put us here as saved individuals and us not do anything. Jesus said to go on all the world and preach the gospel to every person to make disciples. And what an awesome thing it is that we as believers have the opportunity to get in on sharing the gospel in Franklin County and all throughout the world. I pray that God would create a fire within Rocky Mount Baptist Church for seeing people saved. Like one amen. I'm serious. Because until that happens, we can come and we can meet We can invite people. But until God does a work in our heart and He gives us, as we're about to see in just a few moments, a correlation between our desires and His desires, we will be wanting one thing and God will be wanting something entirely different. But when you look at the heart of God in Scripture, you see the love expressed through the redemption of people who can't save themselves. Say, well, Jeff, do I save people? No, we don't save anybody, but we tell them about Jesus who does and can. Next to last, we see there in verse number 11 that grace reveals the brilliance of God's gracious plan. Grace reveals the... It's so brilliant of God's gracious plan. Notice it says, this was in accordance with the eternal purpose with which He carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. Man, this is so awesome. Because you know what it means? This is, this is great. It means that God did not get caught by our sin. It means that God is so personal, that He's so wise, that He's so brilliant, that He can see the future. And not only that, but God can work the future out to produce a good that could not otherwise be there. God's gracious kindness there in verse uh, verse 12, God's grace produces boldness and security. Notice what the text says in verse 12, in whom we have boldness and confidence, confident access through faith in Him. When I was uh, in Texas, I got into my car one day. It was a a fall morning. It was pretty cold. And I got in my car to drive across the Metroplex to church. Well, guess what I saw on my floorboard? I saw a snake skin. And I said, this is an old Jeep. It's very possible. And it's in Texas where everything is bigger. I tell you what, man, I didn't cut on my heater that whole drive. I drove with one foot down on the gas pedal and one foot up here because I said the second I cut that on, that snake's going to come out and it might be right underneath me. And y'all might see, somebody might see like a little Pentecostal action in the car going down uh, 820. But when I got out of the car, when I came back to the car, rather after the service was over, snake skin was, was still there and, and no snake. And so I drove back the same way. And when I got back, I saw one of my friends and he had one of these looks on his face that looks like it needs to be smacked off. You ever notice that with people? And he was laughing and, and, and it occurred to me right then. He said, so how was your ride? I said, it was good. And then he said, it was me. And at that moment... 
I felt led of the Holy Spirit to give him a closed fist healing. You know what I'm talking about? As pure torture, driving that whole way because I didn't have full knowledge. And verse 12 says that we can have boldness in our relationship with God through, notice what the text says, and confident access through faith in Him. That means that when you really get saved, all of the main questions such as, can God forgive me? Where am I going when I die? Who is Jesus? All of those questions are answered and it changes from a life of cowarding or cowering rather from the things that we've done in the presence of God to being bold in the presence of God, not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus has done. And then finally, our action points is our application. Number one, do not lose heart when you see injustice. Notice verse 13. He says, Therefore I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are for your glory. Whenever you guys, whenever we as a group see injustice, we see things that are not right, we see things that should not be, the Bible and God through His Spirit is telling us, do not lose heart. You say, Jeff, how am I not supposed to lose heart when I lose my job, when we have family problems, when it seems like all hell breaks loose? Because, secondly, we trust in the character and the nature of God. That's what it goes back to. That's where boldness comes from. We say, man, it seems like everything is out of control, period. But what I have to do is put my concentration and my faith in the nature and the character of God. Knowing that God is powerful, He is good, and as the song says, Chris Tomlin's song, there is no one like our God. So because God is powerful and because God is loving, I don't have to lose heart when I see injustice. And next, we should take heart in the plan of God. Notice what he says at the end of verse 12. These problems, these tribulations are for your glory. And now Jeff, I thought that our lives were supposed to be for God's glory. Well, when you get saved in your obedience with Christ, they become one and the same. That means that whatever God says is important, I want to have important in my life. That means whatever God says is the priority, man, that's for me. If God says go here, I go there. If God says do this, I do that. And the plan of God, I think one of the greatest application points that we could walk away from this message today with is that spouse who prayed for you for many years when you were away from God, your mother or your father, who when you were a child, they opened up God's Word. Right? You, you remember that? Some of you remember that? And, and, and they told you about Jesus? Or maybe you came to church and you had that Sunday school teacher and they may not have really done much except for read out of the quarterly, but they read to you about Scripture. And that friend that you may have who was concerned about you and they prayed for you and they actually came to see you and they called you and told you about the gospel. What an awesome thing it would be that when we walk away from this service today, we could get on the phone or send an email or write a letter or if that person has gone on to be with God if they're not alive today, just to go before the Lord today and say, God, thank you for my mom. Thank you for my dad. 
Thank you for my spouse. Even though they drive me crazy still, but thank you for them. Because none of us are self-made men or self-made women. We're all products of the grace of God. And finally, we should act based upon boldness and not upon false humility. Final question. How do you define yourself? If I asked you, who are you? Would you go to your job? Would you go to your family background? Would you go to accomplishments in your life? Or would you go back to the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and say, I am who He says I am? Because what Satan will do, he'll come to you time and again and he'll tell you, you are what you have done. But the cross of Jesus Christ says, no longer are you a product of your own making, but once you came to me in faith, Go back to verse 8. You see the Apostle Paul, I am the least of the brothers. I'm the least of the Christians. God's saying that only my grace can produce boldness. Boldness not based upon things that we've done, but boldness based upon what Christ has done for us.